Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That's L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Today the spotlight is on Jim Rondinelli and James D. J.J. Johnston from Immersion Networks a company leading some amazing innovations in spatial audio. Their mission is deceptively simple, to improve the human listening experience. Fascinating, incredibly smart people doing some very exciting work. Enjoy our talk. I would love it if you could both give me a little bit of intro, um, not only on yourselves and, 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 and your background that led you to where you are today, but what your individual roles are um, within Immersion Networks. Got it. Um, well, let me just take sort of the company overview and um, Immersion Networks is a Redmond, based, Redmond, Washington based business that has a pretty simple mission. It's just to make the world a better sounding place. For us, that um, encompasses everything from um, and we have in, we have done work on everything from capture of sound, creation of content, transport and distribution of content as well. Hmm. More specifically, we've developed a platform for the capture, creation, distribution, and rendering of of uh, completely immersive content. Uh, fully immersive audio content that uses psychoacoustic models and techniques that were developed by JJ. So in terms of my background, um, after a long career producing and mixing records, I moved into the tech world in the late 90s, worked at a bunch of early stage tech companies, including mp3.com, which we brought public in 1999, was recruited, and after working in a family office, uh, on music tech investments was recruited to run the publishing business at Warner Chapel. Uh, to lead the company's digital transformation at a time that that was a pretty scary thing for a music publisher. Yeah. Uh, moved from there uh, to uh, back into the startup world and spent the better part of 15 years licensing for music services, ultimately uh, audio, which I had where I had the content licensing content ops uh, and artist relation teams um, under my wing. I had like 45 or something people. Um, and we had the, the service license in 85 countries before we sold it to Pandora in at the end of 2015. Shortly after that, uh, I ran into Paul and JJ and heard what they were working on. And was I found it so compelling that I sort of dropped everything and moved the family from Southern California up here and where I'm now head of operations, which in a smaller company like ours means I'm handling everything from biz dev and corp dev stuff, investor relations, finance, uh, managing outside legal, and basically all the things that are not uh, engineering, coding, and science, where I'm lucky enough to have a great uh, Chief, uh, fact, total in chief is the in the internal title, but most of them would see as see JJ as our chief scientist. So JJ, I'll 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 leave it to you to do your intro unless you want me to do one for you. Well, if you want to add something, feel free. Let's see. Started out junior high school, high school doing bands and amplifiers and speakers. Went to Carnegie Mellon, got my bachelor's and my master's, double E. Um, analog circuit design, optical data processing. You'd be surprised how somewhere the math is in the two. Uh, also did uh, sound reinforcement the whole time I was there, was very occasionally on the air at the uh, carrier current station, which is now a 500-watt station. I'm impressed. Uh, went to Bell Labs as an analog circuit designer. Wow. 
um, did analog circuit design, digital circuit design, um, moved from basically from S domain, Laplace domain to, to Z domain, which is to say sample data domain, if that means anything to you. Uh, worked a lot on speech coding, um, what I, we called then wideband coding, which is seven kilohertz, which when you were in the phone company in 1980 was quite wide band, quite wide band. And then on to uh, working on perceptual audio coding. I'm one of the people that made MP3 happen. Probably the primary person for AAC, for MPEG-2 AAC. Uh, I sort of parted ways with the standards process when they wanted to go to lower and lower and lower rates. And I wanted to go to better and better and better quality. So that was a, a fundamental disagreement. Um, I've also worked along the way on the acoustics, adaptive acoustics. If you go and look for video patents, you find out a lot of video patents for the, uh, a, the uh, ATV uh, video encoder also have my name on them because I studied a lot of the human perception end of things. Um, when Bell Labs exploded, I came out here to the other Evil Empire, um, left that, went to work for a couple little companies, and here I am. Um, so I'm, I'm I going to interject a couple of facts here for JJ, if I may, that I, because JJ and Paul, our CEO, who could not be with us today, always undersell a couple of key point parts of their thing. So JJ's named in several hundred patents. Um, JJ is also seen as the godfather and inventor of AAC and was a major contributor to MP3 as well. Finally, uh, two Lifetime Achievement Awards. Do I have that right? From well, IEEE? And from, well, I got the Flanagan Award, which is the, if you will, the top of the Signal Processing Society Award. In 2006, I got an industry award this year, along with Carl Heinz and Jürgen. Uh, as, a, as the people who push for MP3. Um, we've got a couple other ones. I have uh, a tutorial paper award for writing a tutorial on perceptual coding, both video and audio. That's with Bob Safranic and The Kill Giant. I got some other ones. I, uh, you know, they have so <laughs> JJ is a master at determining what's important in the things that you see and hear and what you're keying on and which elements of that need to go downstream, which is really important in our world of acoustic modeling because what we're actually doing is we're delivering a signal that sounds and feels like a three-dimensional signal, but we're delivering it down a stereo connection using even the file formats, it can even work on the file formats that are in market today. We have proprietary codecs that are a lot better than the stuff that's in market today, which stands to reason when you have the world's premier codec designer as your chief scientist. But um, even, uh, even with um, the relatively outdated and early stage processing that's in the codecs that all music services are using today, we can deliver what in your headphones sounds and feels like a three-dimensional experience that makes you actually feel like you're there. Let me uh, let me put a semicolon in this part of the conversation because I want I want to pause here for a moment and and probe a little bit of what you and JJ have just said for our listeners. There's a couple of comments that JJ made when he was explaining his background that I, I that I sort of want to latch onto, and one was um, the notion of of the human perception. And I, want, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, put it in practical terms for people as to, well, let me say how, what, it, what I think it means um, or how I hear it, and then you could tell me why I'm stupid and wrong and explain it better. Um, but when you think about human perception in terms of things like codec design and audio and video formats and playback, um, is that important in the digital world because it has to do with things like sample rate, and um, spatial placement. Like, can you talk about why the human perceptual part of the engineering or part of the knowledge base is... is well, the, the human perceptual part is not important from the question of, say, 48 kilo, 4816. Um, 
there's you rarely find a house anywhere in the in the world maybe if you're on top of a mountain in colorado or something that actually can handle that dynamic range 48 kilohertz is plenty for uh, bandwidth the time resolution you hear occasional people talking about the time resolution they think it's one divided by the sampling rate and that's off by about a factor of 65,000. It's a lot better than that. Um, so the issues with digital is now that we have these channels, when you have two, say when you have two analog channels, they're never going to be quite coherent. It's the nature of analog. It literally goes all the way back to quantum mechanics, and there's not a lot you'll, do, you'll ever do about that. When you have digital systems, you can get, the, the characteristic of a digital analog system is you can repeat it, but it degrades a little bit every time. A digital system is either 100% of what the, de the only degradation is either at capture or it disappears completely. So the digital system, you can get to the years coherently, which is why there's actually some of the trouble in digital production because people, for instance, when they add two channels together on tape, they, they're actually using the scrape flutter, although they don't know it as a way of decorrelating things a little bit so you don't get comb filtering. But, you know, if you take two channels with one or two sample delay and add them together and they have the same source, it's going to sound very weird. That's because the system is actually able to, rec to deal with the actual data. But the, the, the place where perception is important is if you were to try to capture this, this sound field, say, you know, one meter diameter around your head, you would have a one meter diameter globe that had to be sampled probably on a geodesic at about every half inch. Mm -hmm. Now calling that a whole lot of channels is an understatement. Now you can only hear a little teeny tiny bit of that because of the way your ears work, but it's not something that's easily described by a formula. I mean, the year is not linear. You have to understand the nonlinearity. Um, but what it means, is it means you can reduce this to a many, many fewer channels as long as you maintain the right set of cues going into the auditory system. And what's a cue? What, 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 well, a cue is like, example? oh, at high frequencies, the envelope is signal at low frequencies, the waveform at mid frequencies, a little bit of both. Um, the correlation, the time delay, the frequency response. Maybe I can try to take this up about 100,000 feet. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Just a slight, a slight different take on it. When you have a, when you're, what, one of the things that JJ has mastered is in the world of, let's just use audio codecs as an example and how perceptual audio weighs into this process. Every audio codec starts with a, a fundamental decision of what is important to transmit down the line and what is not important to transmit down the line. And that becomes important because once you can determine that something isn't perceivable or is just not important, you can eliminate those data bits and have a much smaller file. Mm -hmm. Now, our ability to do that is based largely in, in the digital domain, is based largely on JJ's knowledge, not just of the math and, uh, and the systems of digital processing, but it all really starts with his intricate knowledge of understanding how human hearing function works. And he's the, the guy who figured how to overlay that into digital models. Mm -hmm. Okay. That... Does that sound fair, JJ? It's necessary, but not complete. <laughs> please, give me the, please give me the next part that I'm missing. Got three hours. <laughs> maybe Sorry. so. I will maybe pause on that. Well, let me <laughs> let me ask a, let me ask another question though, um, along the lines of where uh, about JJ's background. Um, something else that that struck me was the background in analog circuit design coming through the Bell Labs paradigm. And I think it's hard for people today to understand exactly what Bell Labs meant in the EE world, um, just in terms of 
you know, the research and the, the sort of, I think, I think a lot of younger people maybe have heard of Xerox Park, but probably have not heard of Bell Labs, should have heard of Bell Labs. But is the, um, so I, I'll, that's one data point. The other is you, you talked about uh, where you split, JJ, was the idea of as the file formats were striving to be about smaller size and perhaps lower resolution and you wanted to go in the other direction. Did you maintain that conviction because of your background in telephony and you knew it was just a waiting game in a matter of time that the systems and the bandwidth would catch up? That was pretty obvious. I mean, when, when I moved, well, I did audio for a while, moved to video for two years, went back to audio. Um, but that was just when fiber was appearing. It was pretty clear that the bandwidth was just going I don't know how else to put it. It was just getting bigger, 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 bigger. And the processing capability was getting bigger. But um, the thing about perceptual audio, especially about codecs, is they sound really good until you learn the artifacts. Mm. Once you learn them, they can be pretty annoying. Now, this whole thing is we can get something that sounds kind of sort of like the original at 32 kilobits, good for you but once you learn what it sounds like i suppose it's okay in a car but i can can't even stand it in a car <laughs> sorry and i mean i'm old i don't hear high frequencies that well but it still drives me a um the the whole key is that also the listeners will learn and evolve as they use this stuff i mean mp3 and give you an idea of this this the way this compares to complexity at the end of MP, the MP3 standardization process, people were commenting, oh, it's good work, but it was too complicated. No one will ever use it. Now it's one of the simplest audio codecs out there. Yeah. What problem were you trying to solve with MP3? <laughs> well, like I said, when I was in uh, college, I worked for radio stations. Um, the... If you've ever used a wideband leash line, no. that's a good thing. <laughs> that was basically the first object was to be able to get clean audio between here and there. And there was this thing called, uh, oh, what did they call it? Uh, I forget what they called it, but it gave you 128 kilobits. Basically, it gave you 2B plus 2D, if you know what that means but it amounts to 128 kilobits and two synchronous streams okay. plus a low rate and two other synchronous streams. We won't care about the Ds. Okay. The question is, could I get a single analog channel down that in digital form, and make it sound good. And the thing was, you know, when you're trying research and you do something and suddenly the rate, the, the rate drops by a factor of four and it still sounds good. You know, you had the right idea. So that's basically how the perceptual co audio coding got, came in. But um, the original goal was one channel so that AM stations could get clear channel. It was also it was four it was four bits per sample at thirty two kilohertz, so it wasn't even broadband. From there, we went up to, I mean, then everything became Red Book standard, so we went up to Red Book, and now, well, now we handle whole bunch of stuff let's just leave it at that <laughs> uh, well but um the the whole point is that with the using the perception is that if you look at if you've heard the term entropy in terms of bits per second sure. if you look at the entropy of, of a 16 two channels of 1644 it's about eight bits per sample instead of 16. Now, if you look at the perceptual entropy, this is the first paper I actually published on the subject, that's around, depending on the clip, between half and one and a quarter bits per sample. And if, what the perceptual entropy is, is how many bits you need if you had a perfect coder, which of course you never do, 
how many bits would you need to transmit it if you had this perfect coder? Now, the, th the thing that's true of almost all audio codecs, except ours, I mean, there are a couple others, but I think we uh, do a much more modern job of it, is audio signals do not have a fixed entropy. You know, if you talk about you want to run at 128 kilobits, when the signal has a higher perceptual entropy, you're in trouble. When, it, when you have a signal with 32 kilobit entropy, you know, you're wasting a lot of bits. So how, how does that manifest for the listener? It depends on the codec. Each codec makes its own mistakes because of the, primarily because of the filter banks. But now you get swirlies. You're familiar with this. If you listen to a, a lower rate MP3, especially if you listen to it right next to the original, you notice that the high frequencies are sort of. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's if you one way. Serious right now, you get a really good example of a cassette. Oh, it's all it's okay. horribly swishing now. Well, that's thirty-two. That's also I don't know. I don't know what the bit rate is, but it's a really low bit rate, which is one of the reasons I don't like really low bit rates. Uh, but the uh, other artifact you get is pre-echo. Pre-echo is something that a lot of people don't notice. The catch is this pre-echo destroys, can destroy imaging because your auditory system works on first attacks as far as getting um, angular resolution. So pre-echo, the pre-echo is always going to happen at the far end of the block from the, uh, from the actual signal. So it's going to give you an exactly, and it's mirrored, it's time reversed. So it's going to give you exactly a conflicting piece of information as far as angular resolution. And if you don't handle it properly, that's never going to get better because it is a required property of how filter banks work. And when you say handle it properly, properly, is that in, are you, are you, is that a compensation that you make in software, hardware, or both? It's something you do. In the encoder, you detect when it's a problem, and you do things differently in the encoder. Okay. And there are a couple different things you can do differently, and that's not a discussion for two minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, it goes basically straight into the time resolution of filter banks. <laughs> that doesn't sound like two minutes. <laughs> All right. So... <laughs> <laughs> with with the, with the table accordingly set, um, I, there's so much I want to understand about your company and the space in which you guys are operating. One because there's so much heat around this now. You know whether it's the things we hear coming out of Sony or Dolby or you know there's there's sort of sort of the big electronic brand names running around yelling about immersive audio, getting the streaming services all hot and bothered about it creating a lot of sort of downward pressure, I would say, onto the content owners to hurry up and get everything prepared for immersive audio. Um, and everybody's kind well, of looking around saying, this feels expensive. Like, what are we doing here? And it's well, got to be done by when? Well, it, yeah, let me, take the first, let me take the first part of this one. Um, look, on one hand, we are grateful that, uh, just compare and contrast what's happened with video through the life of the iPhone versus audio. Video, 525 to 1080, 1080 to 4K to, to, to 8K and higher. H.264, 262, 263, 263, 264. We've continued to evolve like, and things have like, gotten better and better and better. All since the inception of the iPhone. JJ did the basic math. You published the basic math for AAC back in 1996 or seven, but you had actually done some of the work back as far as 78 is packed. Is that right, JJ? 80, um, 82. 82. So basically, the entire audio transport chain of the music industry is currently working on 40-year-old digital technology, as ludicrous as that sounds. And, you know, fortunately... And on one hand, that's a testament to how great the work was that JJ did back in that era. On the other hand, 
it shows how much it gives you a sense of how much JJ was able to unlock once modern computational horsepower and cloud computing became factors in the world. Mm-hmm. So, well, just to interrupt there for a yeah, second, um, I'd say it's more like 35 years, not 40, but it, it really does date back to work from before MP3 came out. Mm-hmm. And what's happened since then is what always happens to audio, which is that audio always comes last until you don't have any. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, so so in terms of it forced being that the, the, the pipe to content creators and rights holders, it's an interesting dilemma because when we designed this, so on, in our platform, there were a couple of initial sort of table stakes that became part of the thesis. Uh, be able to deliver an experience over the hardware that somebody already owns. Mm. Um, have You have to be able to address the 100 million masters that are out there in the vaults of the music services today that are already done, plus give people the ability to make new bespoke versions of mixes that take advantage of all the developments in the environment. We call our tool for that MixCube, which is the world's first online cloud-based tool for the creation of immersive content. But MixCube is also accompanied by a transcoding system that can create immersive content with lightning speed and can generate libraries of thousands to tens of thousands of pieces uh, of tracks from what sources uh, from multi-tracks or from two or from two track for two from stereo mono mono stereo mono stereo so we have mixed cubed trades in our mix our our online mixing platform is best serviced by either stems or multi-tracks but let me simplify that a little bit you will take some number of channels and place them somewhere in space, and there you go. If you have two channels, you place them at plus and minus 33 meters from the listener, there you go. If you have 44 channels, I don't know if we handle 44 yet, but there's no ag- algorithmic limit to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you place them all over the place and have some of them moving around. Okay, we do that too. The trick is that we integrate the location, the spatial engine, the psychoacoustics, the hearing models, all into one engine. What I was, where I was going to go partly with audio, audio got cheaper because the processing got cheaper for many years. But the processing hasn't actually been used to improve the audio. Goal here is to improve the audio by actually using and more scaled to current to current processing kinds of machine. I mean, instead of running it now on your watch, I mean, my watch is probably smarter than my first phone. Um, you now actually use a fair amount of CPU, but CPU is cheap. Yeah. Okay. So you guys have really clarified for me, though. The, the point here is that... Um, the why behind not needing tons of new hardware today is because there's basically there's cycles to be claimed for the benefit of audio. There's, there's existing cycles on all this hardware we have floating around that we're carrying in our pockets, sitting in front of that can be leveraged in the service of these audio experiences. Is that fair? We don't even use more cycles on your device. We throw cycles at it to create something which you can play conventionally on your device. Now, I will say, if you want to make your device a little bit smarter, we can do some really cool stuff. But um, that will take somebody wanting to put it in their device. I mean, if we, we can show you, if you come out here, if you sit there and you go like this and you rotate, the audio scene stays put. But, you need head, but obviously for that, you need some work in, the, uh, in uh, your receiving end. Mm-hmm. For instance, another thing that we would really like to get in place is actually sensing the acoustic environment, even if you're in headphones, 
sense how loud the acoustic environment is. We can do that. We can apply compression only when you need it. I mean, level, when I, by the way, when I say coding, I mean trans, reducing bits. When I say compression, I mean level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because the word compression is overlooks, overloaded so many ways in the audio industry. It's not funny. So, but we can apply compression that only kicks in when you need it to hear it over ambient. That means you don't have to damage your hearing to hear the music too, which personally I think is a good thing because I think we're going to see more hearing damage going on and it's not necessary. Because people are wearing ear, but because of the close proximity to the audio source? It's the level they listen to, not the proximity. Gotcha. Right. So that's your point, right? Okay. Okay. And you don't, if you have something that adapts to your local environment, you don't need a level. But that's the kind of thing that goes into the destination. What we do now is the source. So, put so another way, all the work that we're doing, Lawrence, we're doing, you know, the reason we don't need to claim many more cycles on your device is because we're doing everything on the encoding side. Right, right. So, I'm an engineer or I'm a, I'm a content creator and I use, um, I use your platform to create some immersive outputs, content. What can I do with it? Can I deliver that to, through a DSP? Can I, like, what, what's the... You can deliver you know, it to every streaming service that's alive, you, that's alive and running today. It, it comes out as 9624 um, PCM. You can do anything you want to it. Wow. So they're right today. So, and, and to prove this point, nobody thinks of YouTube as having decent audio quality in their digital transport chain. It's, it's you know, it, it handles scale. They built a great system for scale, but they've not built a great system for fidelity, either audio fidelity or video fidelity. But if you listen on our website, immersion.net slash demos, we make a specific point of playing back demonstrations from YouTube because you can experience this in headphones even through their compromised supply chain. There are tracks today now on Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Music where you'll see them labeled as headphone mix or 3D headphone mix that were actually created with our technology as well. The supply chain of the streaming services does not impair the audio. And so is your codec and your platform, is it ultimately, and you have to forgive me if I get the nomenclature wrong, but is it essentially available as a plug-in to other tools that engineers are using? Does this, is this something that becomes an extension of their digital audio workstation? Stay with that concept, extension of the digital audio workstation. The problem with the traditional plugins, which means something that shows up in your workstation software in the midst of it that you can call, is that we deal with uh, mathematics that are orders of magnitude more complicated than what's happening in any of those workstations. Mm-hmm. So literally, they would choke if we started to try to do the computations we do in our in, in the cloud. Well, it's actually the problem is primarily the architecture. Actually, they have fast hardware, but the architecture makes it difficult. Okay. So what you can do, you can basically use our stuff in place of all that. So typically, the workflow is that you complete your stereo mix with whatever your workstation is, and then export pairs in in forms of stems or pre-processed individual tracks with all of your plugins and you know, sounds tapered the way that you wanted them to be tapered, or or tuned, or you know, with the tone adjustments and volume adjustments you wanted to make export them out uh, as WAV files. We import all of them in a batch process. They show up as objects on the screen in the workstation. So really at the moment in this phase of development, we are we look more like a process that you add after you've completed your stereo work in your workstation. Then what tends to happen is once people get used to the tool, they keep moving it farther and farther up in the process. They no longer do their stereo mixes 
on their on their original workstation, they start to do them with us, and we kind of creep up and up the chain. The more familiar people get with what the tools do. So, a great example. Um, because again, we are using psychoacoustics to create the feeling of three-dimensional audio and headphones. We can solve. We can uniquely solve some well-known issues in music mixing. So you may or may not know this, but like, so my first career was producing mixing records and, and golden platinum records with you know, Weezer, Wilco, the Jayhawks, of Aquera, uh, uh, a, a bunch in Canada, uh, a Juno and Aria, whatever. Um, and a reasonably successful career mixing music. There are things that we, that are kind of the classic conflicts for a music mixer to resolve. Um, the interaction between the bass guitar and the bass drum is a, is a real classic one because they, they both tend to be centered in the stereo field. And they have a lot of conflicting frequencies that make it hard to differentiate themselves from each other. It makes it hard to make something that, you know, work, to make them work compatibly. With our system, it's really easy. You import both, you separate them front and back a little bit from each other as they would be on a stage, and they're immediately deconflicted. And you can also separate them a little bit side to side, which is one of the points of us integrating the acoustics with everything else, because then you actually get a distinction that results from actually having them at different points in the actual, in the actual sound field. This is something with a standard pan pot you just don't get. Would you be able to, um, like, are there examples we could, we could point our listeners towards where, are there tracks, you mentioned there's tracks on the existing music services now that, um, that people could hear this in action? Because it seems yes, like it's- If you listen to USA, the new track by Inti, by Inti and Vicente, a Latin artist, fantastic band, um, they, they're a, they're, there's a great example there. There's an acoustic EP by a band called Vale, B-A-L-E, also came from our, our partner and uh, one of our key influencers, a guy called Sebastian Chris, 19-time Grammy winner, who feels that, that, that this platform is the best thing he's heard since the invention of stereo. His <laughs> words, not mine. Um, those things are out there. There's a lot more coming out in the fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year as everybody's release schedules get you know, decluttered with everybody trying to come into the system at the same time now Yeah, with COVID. And so you have a sense of at what point in time um, I will fire up Spotify, put in my earbuds or my headphones or in my stereo, and everything will be the the, uh, the two track stereo mixes will be replaced with immersive audio. I don't know that that'll ever happen. Um, people have preferences and artistic tendencies towards one thing or another. Um, one of the interesting things. Immersive audio and spatial audio are being used so broadly now, and there are really, you know, several different approaches out there. There's the approach that Dolby and Sony are taking, which uses multiple object channels, and, you know, when you try to fold it down the headphones, it doesn't work as well as it should. Um, and then there's our approach where we're delivering not only the files, but the entire environment that, that the music was, you know, intended to be listened in, into your signal. And JJ, you can probably explain the difference, which approaches a lot more eloquently than I can. I just say that because, you know, does it ever replace everything in the world? And does the world ever become all spatial, all immersive? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, there's still people who like to watch movies in black and white. So it'll just be a filter function in your in your browsing and searching experience. They'll stay maybe, the maybe not. Maybe it, you know, maybe it's not a filter. Maybe it's just this was made this way, this was made that way. It really depends on what somebody wants artistically from the output. And similarly, I mean, you know, what we're finding is once people hear this, they tend not to want to hear things via other systems. Yeah. Uh, so part of it is, you know, learning and conditioned response as well i think you summed it up at the level that we can communicate in half an hour there are a lot of details missing in a standard stereo production and 
we try to put the ones back that actually matter to the year. You can never put, like I was going with the original, you'd need 10,000 channels to reproduce something analytically. That's never going to happen. You know, well, it does happen in a few limited places that are all military, but let's leave it at that. Um, you're never going to do that for a com consumer thing, but can you somehow condense this to the point where the consumer can get the experience? And that's what we're working on. Is there any truth... Or, or what is the truth behind the, the idea that there is digital fatigue for listeners, that there are listeners who, who will say or who will talk about the fact that listening to digital audio makes them tired or, or, or tires their ears versus the warmth that they're perceiving in analog playback? Um, is there a truth well, to that? Well, the, you're talking now about preference as opposed to accuracy. So there is no objective reality there. Well, it is possible to come up with distortions that sound good. Now, over what, since the 1940s to current day, people have gotten pretty good at making LPs sound euphonic. Um, they're not accurate, but they're euphonic. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody prefer, prefers the euphonic character it's not anybody's business to argue. My solution to that is just understand it and add it to the digital. Yes, you can do that. But the point, the point, the point where you sometimes you run into a roadblock is people don't want to accept the fact that what they prefer is some nice second-order distortion in the mid-range, for instance. Right. There's nothing wrong about that. You prefer it. I mean, you can't argue that. They don't want you to commodify but, their fetish. <laughs> I wouldn't put it quite that strongly. But with some people, it's tempting to say that. But the fact is, is that it's a question of, if, it, if we're talking about a question of art as opposed to a question of accuracy, you do what the art wants. Right. Um, yeah, that's all doable in the digital domain. But it's another facet of this whole point of how the coherence works in digital. You know, you need to understand, and people to this day do, often do not understand that by having all that coherence, you actually add some requirements to your production. You have to know that it's coherent, and you have to know when to not have it be coherent anymore, for instance. What would be an example? Um, literally an example, if you have a nice, just a nice, uh, you know, space pair or something like that and you add them together with something that's a little bit off the one side to go to mono you don't get too much evident comb filtering in the tape you will get obvious comb filtering in the digital domain and that is because the characteristics of tape help basically it moves the zeros around so that they're not nearly as noticeable it's still a bad practice, but it's a lot better on tape than it is in digital. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the digital, the PCM is more accurate. It doesn't have any scrape flutter. It doesn't have any jitter. There's no tape, you know, skew. Um, it's just rock solid. The samples happen at the same time within picoseconds. And that... I just realized this actually made me want to ask you a question. When Lawrence was talking about digital fatigue, can any of the digital fatigue be related to the known artifacts of the previous generations of codecs, whether it's pre-echo, people being conditioned to pre-echo or getting fatigued because they're listening to the operation of crappy filters? I don't know offhand. I'm sure that some of it could be. I think though that really the really big problem with digital fatigue though is that, which is which I didn't which I was about to bring up is that you cannot hyper compress in term hyper hyper compress in terms of level now mm -hmm. um, an LP or a tape you'll saturate the tape you'll mistrack the LP but with digital you're linear right up to clipping. So you can squish the daylights out of things in digital and make them louder. And one of the things I find fatiguing 
is modern production that wants to make it loud. Yeah. The degree to which I loathe that should not be said in a public channel. <laughs> well, you're and not naming names. <laughs> I'm not naming names. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, is that the perception that the louder it is, the better it is, is not really true. And when I say loud, I'm talking about the perceptual variable known as loudness. Right. Not talking about energy or signal level. Because if you take a signal and you make it more broadband, but keep the same total energy, it's going to sound louder. So when you have these compressors that scatter the spectrum like mad, it sounds louder. So Some people like it. I won't argue with personal taste. Yeah. I just go like this. <laughs> JJ, let me ask you a question on that point, and then, uh, and then we'll loop back to, to some more specifics about the company. Um, so I have, a, I have an older integrated amplifier. It's an old Marantz, I think a 2275. And there's the loudness button on it. When I press the loudness button, what's happening? What's it doing? Well, depending on how it's implemented, you're giving you some bass boost or some bass boost and some treble boost, depending on how they've done it. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to throw in an equal loudness curve. The problem with that is the equal loudness curve only applies for one specific signal level. And in order to actually, if you will, try to make the thing sound with, okay, I need to define a term called partial loudness. Okay. You know, your, your cochlea is a filter. You detect high frequencies at the entrance and low frequencies at the other end. Now you can look at a set of loudnesses calculated along the cochlea. Those are the partial loudnesses. The sum of the partial loudness is the perceived loudness. But the point is, is that when you get above threshold, the loudness growth initially, initially when you go over threshold is quite rapid, and then it slows down. So if you boost the bass and you're listening quietly, that's fine until something with a lot of bass comes in. And then, it's too, then the bass is too loud. It's not higher energy, but it's too loud because it's too far over threshold. Mm -hmm. So you can do this, but you have to do it right. You have to know the efficiency, the transfer of the speak, transfer function of the speakers. And it's not a simple, it's not a simple amount of processing which will necessarily have about a quarter of a second latency. But it is doable to do the real thing. So say you can turn the, uh, you can turn, say, the, the, you know, the beginning to Beethoven 6 down, really quiet and still hear all the music. But it's not a linear process, and it can't be done with one curve. And what loudness control do basically usually is throw in one curve or some of them throw in, instead of one curve, throw in a curve that varies a little bit with the setting of the volume control. But the volume control is still fixed, so you still don't have adaptation to the signal. Gotcha. It is a much more complicated problem than people want it to be. Yeah. And it's, well, there's something else you, in, your, in, your, in your answer, in your description, what, what, what sort of clicks for me is that you solved the riddle for me as to why it's only a satisfying effect sometimes. It can only be right for one input spectrum. Yeah. Okay. All right. So thank you for that. Um, Jim, let me ask you, can you, can you, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Um, I know we're coming towards the end of our time together. Can you tell me a little bit about your go to market and sort of your approach in, um, in taking this solution to consumers, you know, to achieving yeah. your mission? What's your, what's your approach and how is it different from some of the other folks out there throwing around some similar words? We have a very, we have a very simple goal for our company and that's just for people to hear what we're doing. Because when people hear what we're doing, it generates, it generates a ton of energy and excitement and activity. So quite simply, this phase in our company is about people listening to music and audio content and podcasts and things that are created on the platform. We set, made the platform to create, to create immersive content. It's super easy and accessible. It's a 
30-day free trial followed by a 999 month uh, uh, subscription model. Uh, we're not asking you to buy new hardware. We're not asking you to buy special speakers. Um, and that's something that you can, you know, you can use the capability, you know, more computing capability than, than ever has been available to even professional audio, uh, uh, professional audio producers in the past uh, at that price point. But it's really simple. Uh, we want people creating content, listening to stuff, and the rest carries itself. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you're making me really want to plunk down for that nine ninety nine or for that free trial and experiment with how fun our podcast could sound with uh, having a virtual roundtable and everybody sitting around it. It's very actually very you could do that. Yeah, we you can do that. We could set that up for you in about five seconds. Uh, all right. After you've uploaded the well, if you have separate audio feeds for each person, all you do is you set them up in three different places and you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And in the meantime, if you think of it in terms of like CGI and green screen, you know how if you think about that, in CGI, you've disaggregated the performance of the actor from the environment that they're performing in. And it gives the storyteller the ability to place that actor in a different environment. They're in front of a waterfall, they're in front of a bar, they're in an office building, it's all green screen in the back. They're fighting a monster, it's still green screen. We, in essence, allow use very, very sophisticated psychoacoustic techniques and a whole the connection of a whole bunch of variables as you move things front and back. It's not just louder, softer, closer, farther. Um, to really create the feeling of that, and we give the storyteller control over all of those aspects. Yeah, yeah, I can see that analogy. Well, I hope that um, I hope that. Uh, my lack of technical finesse here has not dumbed down your product or your presentation too much. <laughs> I'm truly fascinated by what you're doing. And um, as just a, as a, as a, a listener, as a consumer of audio, lifelong lover of all types of audio related content, it's exciting to watch this space unfold. Um, it may not feel as rapidly for those of you who have been knee deep in it for a whole career, but as a consumer, it seems like um, it's, it's washing over us quite quickly. So um, I think I'm going to go with that wave and see, uh, see where it leads us, but thank you for making time to do this. Thank you so much, Jim, JJ, and the team at immersion networks. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.